0: Hello, hi there, welcome to Guiding Voice podcast series, the guiding voice for a better future. This podcast is to help students and young professionals to shape their careers. Dear listeners, in every episode, we interact with industry experts and drive some insightful conversation that will help our audience learn great things. Also, we share an interesting trivia or fun fact around the IT world towards end of every episode. Thank you for tuning in. This is Naveen and I'm with my co-host Sudhakar. So today we are pleased to welcome our first ever global CXO leader, Dean, to our show. And we are going to discuss evolution
1: of global CIO role. In his illustrious career spanning over 33 years, Dean played various global roles and has seen the technology bringing the world closer. Dean Crutchfield is currently working as the Chief Information Officer with CDK Global. Before this, Dean worked as Vice President and CIO at Gibra Technologies. Dean was with Dell for 14 years. During his tenure, Dell transformed itself to be a technology company with its innovative just-in-time methodology. Dean, welcome to our The Guiding Voice podcast. Let's get into our conversation.
2: Thanks, Naveen. Thanks for uh, for having us here, and thanks, uh, Sadaka, for having me. I'm really excited to be on the show with you.
1: Dean, let's get started. Can you please share a bit about your career journey? We know you as the CIO in CDK and in previous job with Jabra and Dell. How did it all start, and what kind of other roles have you taken? Wow. let's see.
2: You know, I studied management information systems at university mm-hmm. and I was a general business student initially and and I didn't know exactly what area of focus or emphasis so in at my university you picked an area of focus within the college of business so accounting or finance or sales or another area of focus within business mm-hmm. and I took my first programming class and I was hooked always been somebody who kind of needed to feel that practical exchange, right, in learning. Mm-hmm. I've been always really curious in my life and, you know, taking apart bicycles or lawnmowers or something, you know, when I was a kid. So I was really interested in mechanical things and practical application of learning. And when I started to program... I really fell in love with technology and how it could be used to... I could see very clearly that it it could be used to automate, obviously, things, or it could be used to improve things. And at that time, in the early 80s, we were right at the cusp of where computing technology was changing from large, monolithic, mainframe-based systems, and the Apple II had come out and the IBM PC had come out. So it was a very, very interesting time in the period of computing history. And that was right when I'm graduating from college, so I started as a programmer, and I've had a lot of different roles since then. Systems analyst, you know, I moved into management reasonably quickly, project management. So these were early roles that I held that just kind of shaped who I was. But another thing, Naveen and Sadhakar, I would say is I also volunteered a lot. I was a, a member of what we at the time called the Data Processing Management Association, which is now the Society of Information Managers. Mm-hmm. And I always had the propensity to want to be involved in leading and engaging with other people. And so that led to some interesting you know, elements in my career that maybe we can talk more about uh, today.
1: Thank you, Dean. That's a great summary. You know, from monolithic mainframes in 80s, to current microservices architecture in cloud, how do you think IT as a whole and CIO role in particular evolved over the last three, three and a half decades, Dean?
2: Wow, how much time do we have? <laughs> oh my God! Yes, you know, as I sit here and just reflect on it, it's it's really an interesting question and an interesting reflection because at a certain point in time, I you know, people can go to museums now and see this stuff, right? but I saw and programmed with punch cards, right? So at the very beginning of my programming career, and, and you know, back to my comments about how programming was meaningful to me, this was one part that was really hard. And so imagine you had a card deck that punched. It was the binary representation of your program, right? That then fed into a card reader and it had to feed in in sequence, right? It couldn't feed in not in sequence. So it was the program representation, the source code, if you will, was represented not in something that was stored digitally, but something that was formed. So it was stored physically and then read digitally through a card reader. So and then, you know, what was really interesting from that point, if you ever dropped your card deck? You were like, oh, my gosh, what a problem that was putting it back together because some of the decks were pretty long, like 500 cards. Yeah, we went to, from that to line to line editing right and then to full screen editing you know to object orientation now you know to as you said microservices and cloud so it it has been an incredible change over the last you know I've been working now for 38 years so it's been an incredible change to watch but what's been great is you know the productivity programmers is much different now than the productivity of programmers when i first started it's massively different and even now, as, as you and, and Naveen know, Sadakar we're getting into things like citizen programming, right, where people don't have to be, you know, super specialized or have to be super trained, you know, to be able to deal with basic logic stuff. You know, my neighbor put in a an alarm system recently, you know, and now he's programmed his mobile phone to, you know. He wrote his own program, right? Using some of their uh, tools to modify and manage his alarm system, right? I mean, stuff like that would have been low level programming back in the day. You know, I think the biggest benefit of all the evolution and all the innovation, which has been absolutely incredible, is how much easier it is and how much more readily available things like open source are right? That was never a concept. We all wrote what we wrote. And enterprise, you know, class applications, I mean, people wrote payroll systems back in the day. So, you know, we would never think of writing a payroll system today. So things like that are very, very different over the last uh, few decades.
0: So 38 years of experience, and you have summarized it very well in such a short time. And as a global leader who has seen the world getting transformed and locations becoming just a name. What are some of the things that amaze you today, Dean?
2: Well, Naveen, I mean, one of the things I really recall is, and and it's very different for people, I think, today, young people coming out of universities. I didn't travel internationally outside of the United States until I was in my 30s. So now, right, when young people graduate, they're typically working or have an opportunity. Maybe it's for pleasure. Maybe it's for work to travel more. And so I think one of the things that really you know amazes me now is just how many young people I meet who have experienced traveling to the UK or traveling to Central America or South America and places that maybe in their formidable years of growing up they didn't imagine they would interact with or work with the cultural experiences have been just fantastic I, I remember you know working early in my career and, and starting to work with people from India and you know working with people in India and it's just been you know really really a big joy of my career has been working with people from various parts of the world because you can't do that and not learn something really important you know, that helps you have a greater just kind of awareness of humanity, right? And that that to me is a, is a gift.
0: <laughs> yeah, thanks, Dean, for the answer. And now let's talk a little bit about your work life. How does a typical day look like in the life of a CIO? <laughs>
2: <laughs> I There's a lot of context switching, right? You, you know, you're involved in a lot of leadership and meeting kind of activities, right, that are you know staff meetings or you know budget meetings or things of that nature right that are really necessary to guide and run a company a lot of time with your your direct reports a lot of mentoring and coaching you know a lot of you know status work with uh, different people run a lot of programs and projects and it's always important to understand how those programs and projects are, are operating, are they healthy, are they in some sort of need, you know, are, is there something that we can all work together to recover, a timeline, or a budget, or whatever it might be. To me the people side of the business remains the fun part of the business, so I enjoy coaching and mentoring, I try to, you know, meet with as many people one-on-one or in small groups that I can, and that's where I feel like I still learn a lot, right? So. You know, a lot of things that I do every day are are things that I've learned over the years, you know, how to budget or how to ask questions during a program status meeting or so on. But what I enjoy, because this field moves so quickly, is people who are practitioners having the opportunity to talk to them about what they're doing and how they're making a difference and what they're learning. I mean, it's a reverse mentoring. It's one of the great opportunities of being a leader in this industry you know is as a cio or any sort of digital uh leadership position is make sure you learn from other people right and those people are, are not the people above you necessarily just exclusively there is the people that are doing the work on your team that you can get some of the best uh, learning and, and opportunity to improve your own understanding of things so that it varies Naveen and the days are very different <laughs> and there's often a lot of meetings but where I find the greatest value is with with people that I can spend time with and learn from and, and help them to help them with perspective yep. learning you know and setting an environment that's constructive for them to participate in and feel good that they're being productive and um, contributing.
1: So Dean, continuing on the topic of mentoring and coaching aspect, from a student or a young professional standpoint, how to aspire to be a global executive like you?
2: Well, one bit of advice I would start with, Sadakar is, you know, be careful what you say no to, right? When you first, one of the things I learned pretty early in my career is sometimes I felt like an assignment that I was given. Meaning, you know, like a new role it was a downgrade, or as you know, it was a lateral, or it wasn't, you know, something that I, you know, I felt like I was, you know, you know probably the best way to characterize it quickly is I was being punished, <laughs> right? But those turned out to be some of the greatest experiences, right? So I remember one experience in particular, Sadakar, where I was asked to lead a data group, right? DBAs, data architects. And I didn't have any experience doing that, right? I was a person who had infrastructure experience at the time. I had, you know, had some application development experience and and I had some really negative thoughts towards my DBA leaders from, you know, being, being a programmer and at the time when when I was programming your DBA, you kind of feared because the DBA leaders were the ones who really understood the efficiency of your code. Mm-hmm. Most everybody else looked at your code and said, Hey, it looks pretty good. You know, the screens look nice. The color choice was great. <laughs> you know, things of that nature, right? It was more design and they didn't really understand how it was consuming resources, and at the time, resource consumption, you know, was expensive, and it's it's ironic because in the cloud we've come full circle, right? Concerned about things like serverless and Aurora, and you know, being able to auto scale or have elastic scaling in the cloud. Well, those concepts were still concepts and have been concepts throughout the, you know the history of computing, and the DBA leaders. Were the ones who understood efficient code, right? Because you know, most of the mechanical work of a program, most of the consumption, resource consumption of a program is through the database. And so I feared my DBA leader. And I was like, oh my gosh, now I'm gonna manage DBAs and I'm gonna manage data architects. Well, it turned out to be an outstanding career choice. It led to a lot of other things that I would have initially thought, okay, this is just saying how I felt at the time, not, not how I feel today, by the way. But at the time, I felt like, okay, this is kind of a downgrade experience, so to speak, versus an upgrade experience. Well, it turned out to be quite the opposite. Being a leader of a DBA organization, a data architecture organization, and I did that for like five or six years, really opened my eyes to you know, relational database design, efficiency of database and code, data modeling, data cataloging. You know, data dictionaries and the importance of a good data dictionary inside of an architecture, and so those were really, really great experiences. So, what I guess I would say to listeners, Sadakar and Naveen is, hey, be careful. Sometimes your perception of an experience, or a perception of a job assignment, or a role, or even a new uh, a career change, you know, might not be what you think it is, right? And I think experiment, right? Be willing to experiment, and don't try not to think about the status of the job. Think about what you're going to learn in the job. You know, and and I think if you use that as your guide, what am I gonna learn this job versus what's the status of this job? Then I think you you find yourself learning a lot faster and learning a lot more. And that that learning will be applied in, in many valuable ways in the future.
1: Great, learning as an opportunity in every challenge that is thrown at you. Thank you, Dean. On the learning aspect, Dean, I know way back you had interviewed Bill Gates and I think a couple of times actually. How was that
2: experience? So just a little bit more context, I started a television show in the early 80s in the United States because there was so much Curiosity, if you will, about computing technology. I was a member of one of the largest PC user groups in the United States, a, a group called Houston Area League of PC Users. So I was living in Houston, Texas, which is in the southern part of the United States, and it was a you know very large city, similar to probably what Bangalore you know size. And so what happened is we started a user group, personal computers, right? So this was like people being curious about IBM PCs, and you know at the time Microsoft was. fledgling company, right? They had created the Mm -hmm. basic, you know, the programming language for the IBM PC. And that was how I met Bill Gates is he came to the Houston area league of PC users and he spoke. And I can remember, you know, it was probably 1983, 1984. And he was a young man. He was my age. You know, I was 23 at the time, 24. He was roughly the same age. (laughs) You know, at the time he was probably... Wondering, you know, did he do the right thing dropping out of Harvard, the right code for a company that, you know, he and Paul Allen started and, and and so it was really more about the evolution of basic and coding, you know, at the time, you know, this runtime language and so. Nobody thought about security or any of the other characteristics of code now that we would, you know, just tremendously be concerned about. But it was a time of high innovation and time time of high experimentation. And you could tell he was, you know, when I met him, he was very bright. He is very bright. He's a very, very intelligent individual. And and I think people like that are driven. They're driven in a way that, you know, I. I think is just different. It wasn't like this was work to him, this was fun to him. And I think you can find, you know, and you can find that spot where, where work, is, work isn't work, work is fun. Like you're waking up at four in the morning and you're going, wow, what, you know, how do I innovate on X or how do I change or get better on Y? When you're having those kind of moments in your career, that's when you're really blessed with an assignment or a company or a journey that's really fulfilling. And when I met Gates, I could tell that's where he was at, you know, and nobody knew exactly what he would, you know, he, he could have been like many other entrepreneurs at that time that fizzled out. I, I remember some of those as well, you know, remember Novell or remember Borland International you know, some of these companies at that time were hot, you know, and going fast, but they didn't have the, the, you know, kind of the endurance and the enduring uh, impact that Microsoft has had. And I think what's really cool about Bill is he's become extremely altruistic. He's, you know, his philanthropy, his willingness to give back and do things for other people. And if you read more about him over his, you know, kind of Later, you know, recent years, in some ways quite apologetic in his reflection on how he operated at Microsoft. He was a real driver, right, and he really pushed people hard. And I think he realizes now, in in retrospect, that you know he was probably not an easy person to work with or work for. But you know, I think he's obviously with his resources, he's been very, very much a you know a person who gives back, which I, I have great admiration for. But it was a, you know, it was really interesting to meet him at that stage in his career and and have an opportunity, you know, to, to talk with him.
0: Quite an interesting stuff and another great leader like Bill Gates. And thank you for sharing those insights, Dean. On the personal front, we heard about your adventures like cycling, hiking and skiing. So how do you manage all these things with your busy schedule as a global leader where time zone doesn't matter?
2: Wow. well um you know first of all I, I, you know, let's talk about the time zones first cuz that's a really a good <laughs> one being um yeah you know, i've always tried to be accommodating to other people and other time zones and so like even Sadaka and i when we meet often we'll meet early in the morning it'll be early evening for him and so you know i just feel like it's a it's a sign of enormous respect when you don't expect people you know to meet on your time zone right and you know be up at midnight in their time zone for instance right and even when we do you know all hands or all leaders meetings we try to do them twice once in a time zone that's friendly for the european team and once for a time zone that's friendly for the asia team so I think it's really important that people in leadership roles you know leading global teams that they they respect other people and they do those things um, and they do them well. My passion for staying active with bicycling and hiking and skiing You know, I try to take time off, but I also, when I'm working, I try to make sure that even if I had a time in the afternoon, I don't feel guilty using that time in the afternoon, for instance, like 2 p.m. in the afternoon, to go ride my bike. Because we all work so much, right? I don't think that's, you know, a secret that we're all working. The CDK job is a seven days a week kind of job because... You know, you never know when something is going to be needed to be attended to on a weekend because we support so many customers globally. And the weekend uh, days like Saturday and Sunday are very busy car buying days and sometimes car servicing or truck servicing days as well. So system availability is always paramount. System security is always paramount importance. And so I don't feel guilty if I have to take time during the week or I try to, you know, carve out and schedule time during the week to do something that I enjoy. And I think I think it's really important for everyone to get in the habit and stay in the habit of exercising you know if you're a young professional student or new in career you know try and maintain that habit i mean your your body is in a position where you can do things a lot better than people when you get older And so if you start that habit, your chances are as you get older, you're going to be able to maintain some element of that, you know, exercise and that activity. So I think it's super important to control your stress and your well-being and and you're you're more pleasant to other people when you're, at least I am, when I'm exercising and uh, trying to get out and do some of the things that I really enjoy.
0: Those are amazing tips, uh, uh, Dean. You mentioned about uh, being uh, fit and try to indulge in some activities. And at the same time, I like one aspect about uh, being sensible to time zones of your team members and being flexible at the need of the hour. So that speaks volumes about your leadership and kudos to that thought process. Dean, as part of our global CXO series, today we are introducing a new segment from this episode. So we plan to ask you a few rapid fire questions. Are you ready? Mm -hmm. (laughs) This is like the bonus round, eh, Naveen? (laughs) (laughs) Exactly, yeah. All right, so here comes the number one question. One thing that you look for in an employee?
2: Curiosity.
0: All right, Uh, next one. What technology means for you? To me, it's a way to get things done faster and better and improve,
2: hopefully improve society.
0: Awesome. Here comes the third one. If you had a million dollars to invest and other than the company where you're working for, which company would you invest in? My own company. <laughs> All right. So next one. What was your dream job during your childhood? Oh, gosh. Uh, <laughs> I wanted to work in a bicycle shop. <laughs> That's a good one, Dean. Oh,
2: man. I love, <laughs> love bicycles. Obviously, you guys know that, right? Yeah. I think and that technology has gone a long you know, ways since I was younger as well. So even bicycles are much different. You know, and motorbikes, I mean, you know, much different. Electric bikes now. So, yeah,
0: don't get me going on this one, Naveed. Uh, very interesting and uh, last question as part of uh, rapid fire round uh, one gadget that you cannot live without
2: my mobile phone right I think everybody would probably a lot of people probably would say that but just so it's so much utility in a mobile phone now right including when I exercise right it's become part of my uh, instrumentation when I
1: exercise now Dean, thank you for your time. Now that we are done with the rapid fire, we would like to conclude this conversation with one final question. In summary, life of a global leader is?
2: Wow. At times, extremely fulfilling, extremely
1: satisfying,
2: because I love people. And it involves, you know, meeting all people, all different types of people, and encouraging, inspiring them to work as a team. So I think that's, to me, the most energizing part of the role, you know, the challenging parts of the role are there too, right, when things don't work, budgets are being cut, you know, all the reality of things that take place inside of a business. But to me, it, it all has continues to center on the people you work with. And, and that's what really keeps me excited and energized to do what I do.
1: Thank you so much for taking your time today for us, Dean. We really appreciate it. It was indeed a great discussion on this Global CXO series. Thank you again. Thank you, Naveen. Thank you, Sadaka, for having me. Thank you so much, Dean. Dear listeners, to know more about our speaker and the content, visit or follow us on social media. We are available on LinkedIn, Facebook, Insta, Twitter, Pinterest, and also on YouTube. Just search for The Guiding Voice and then... Follow, like, subscribe to us, and also please share within your network. Please feel free to email us at the Guiding Voice for You, that is T H E G U I D I N G V O I C E 4 as it is it U as a letter at gmail.com or WhatsApp us on India number nine four nine four five eight seven one eight seven. Again, it is India number nine four nine four. and we will be happy to collaborate with you. Alright, so it brings
0: us to the trivia segment of today's episode. And today's trivia is about internet devices. Do you know, in 1984, the number of internet devices reached just 1,000. By 1992, it reached 1 million. And in 2008, the number of internet devices reached a billion. By the end of 2018, there were an estimated 22 billion internet of things connected devices in use around the world. As the sophistication of both hardware and software in the consumer electronics industry skyrockets, an increasing share of the electronic devices produced around the world are manufactured with internet connectivity and the forecast suggests that by 2030, With just 10 years from now, there will be more than 50 billion of IoT devices which will be in use around the world, which creates a massive web of interconnected devices spanning everything from smartphones to home appliances to connected cars, drones, so on and so forth. So it is very exciting to imagine how the world looks like in 10 years from now. Interesting, isn't it? Thank you for listening. There's more in store, folks. Stay tuned. Take care be safe. Until next time, bye-bye.